The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Grace. Sending genetic tests and interpreting the results are not straightforward, even for clinicians, because genetic variants are common, and whether these are meaningful changes isn't always clear. Many conditions like parvovic kinase deficiency are diagnosed with genetic testing, and so it's critical to understand the results. We're fortunate today to have Claire Egan joining today's podcast. Claire is a senior genetic counselor with Informed DNA. She graduated from St. Lawrence College and has a master's in human genetics. She has extensive experience in pediatrics and in adult genetics and counsels patients with parvovic kinase deficiency. I'm looking forward to today's discussion to better understand the role of genetic testing in parvovic kinase deficiency and interpretation of the results. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. I thought we could start by talking a little bit about you and what made you become interested in becoming a genetic counsellor. First of all, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to get to talk with someone else who works in genetics or with genetic conditions. And I'm happy to be here to help share some information about what we do as genetic counsellors in this field. What made me become a genetic counsellor? Over the course of my life, I I never realised it, but there were a couple of incidences where I now, looking back, I know were potentially genetic conditions. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, had a diagnosis of very early onset dementia, diagnosed at 49. That was obviously a challenge in the family. And I had a very good friend back in my home country of Scotland who had a daughter who was diagnosed with neonatal Marfan syndrome, very severe form of Marfan syndrome. And that had a big impact on my very close friend and everyone who knows him. And fast forward throughout my life, I had a couple of careers, one in an industry and one in academia in the United States as an analytical chemist. And I went back to grad school to do some extra studies and I stumbled upon genetics as a degree option which I fell in love with. And it was during that time I heard a lecture from a genetic counsellor, a programme director, and she described genetic counselling to me. And I literally sat in the, the lecture theatre. I had a like an Oprah moment and I said, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It was a light bulb moment. And so I pursued genetic counselling at that point thereafter. And I've been doing this for about 12 years now. That's great. And then how do you feel like your background in chemistry has enriched your experience as a genetic counselor and added to how you think about patients and their families? How I think about patients, yeah. It's a very people-oriented person. I always say it drives my husband crazy, but I always say it that strangers are just your next best friend that you haven't said hello to yet. So I'm always out there saying hi to people, getting involved in people's business when I shouldn't, just in general. But in terms of the chemistry background, when I first started pursuing biology as a a potential career and I was doing biology studies, it just blew my mind having had the chemistry background. So these molecules and everything in the world is made up of molecules. I would sometimes sit in a lecture and look at my hand and try and think about my hand's made up of cells and within these cells there's these molecules and all these molecules are doing these different things every millisecond of every day and it blew my mind how amazing humans are when we start thinking about it at the kind of the cellular and then the molecular level and so the chemistry background it just biology made me put 
chemistry into context and it gave chemistry a purpose and a reason and a, okay this makes sense this actually made me realize just how amazing human be- organisms but human beings are in general and how helping someone understand what's going on in their body at the cellular and at the molecular level can change how they think about themselves or their disease that they have and it can be quite empowering. I think genetics can be so overwhelming for patients and families or the idea of genetic testing and even seeing genetic results. And that's such a key part of your role as a genetic counselor in terms of helping families to understand why genetic testing is needed and how to interpret the results. Let's turn a little bit to the genetics of PK deficiency. Can you explain to the listeners what are the genetics behind PK deficiency? Sure. So the way I start any conversation with any family, and as you say, it can be very overwhelming, this thought and concept. So I like to take the conversation back and frame it and then come back into the specific disorder or the specific gene. And I always frame our conversations with as humans, all of us, we all have about 20,000 genes in almost every cell in our bodies. And the way I tend to think of a gene really is like a genetic instruction. It's an instruction. We all have this blueprint set of instructions that tell us everything about ourselves. We have genes that tell us our eye color or our hair color or how tall we grow. There's thousands of genes that tell the brain how to grow and develop and do its job or the bones or the red blood cells. And all the genes that we have in our bodies, for the most part, we have two copies of them. We have inherited one that came along in the egg cell from mom and one that came along in the sperm cell from dad. So we're each uniquely made up half from mom and half from dad, two copies of all of our genes. Now, with PK deficiency, that one gene, that one genetic instruction, that plays a role in how our bodies break down sugars. Our bodies break down sugars because we need that process to happen so that we have energy. And the cells in our bodies need energy. And the gene that's involved in PK deficiency, the name of that one gene, that one genetic instruction, PKLR, is involved in the process of the breaking down of the sugars to provide the cells with energy. When the PKLR gene is not working properly, when it's not doing its job as well as it's supposed to, we don't get the energy produced as well as we need it to be. And what happens is the red blood cells don't get enough energy to do their job. And so they become dehydrated and they break down prematurely or early when they're not supposed to. They haven't quite done their jobs yet. And so we have a a loss of the red blood cells and someone can have anemia because that gene is not working properly the way it's supposed to. When you describe the inheritance pattern of PK deficiency, how would you explain it to families in terms of what you had described about it coming from each parent? Mom and dad, each parent, right. So as I said, we all have two copies of all of the almost 20,000 genes that we have. Genetic conditions are inherited in different ways. And sometimes we have to only have one copy of a gene not working for someone to have symptoms of the condition. With PK deficiency, we have to have both copies of the gene not working. So the copy we inherit from mom doesn't work properly and the copy we inherit from dad doesn't work properly. So it's what we call an autosomal recessive condition. Recessive meaning we have to have both copies of the gene not working for us to have symptoms of the condition. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. 
Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. One complicating factor, I think, for clinicians, but for patients and families too, when they get back the results, is that different tests may be sent from different practices. And so it may be that between two individuals, they've had different types of genetic tests done with ultimately the same result in terms of finding out that they have pyruvate kinase deficiency, but the genetic testing was done differently. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that as well. The different types of tests, yeah, of course. And even taking a step a little bit further back in terms of how the testing can be done, some people will come to us and they'll say, oh, genetic testing, I don't know, you're going to do a spinal tap, right? And they think it's some big thing where we're going to be very invasive and it's a procedure that they're nervous about going through with. Historically, we were doing genetic testing on blood samples and fast forward now to 2023, we can easily do genetic testing on blood samples. Sometimes people do it on a skin biopsy if we're looking for a very specific type of condition, but we can also do genetic testing on a saliva sample. It's nothing more than spitting in a tube. Sometimes we can use, let's say we have an infant, for example, who can't sit up and fill the tube full of saliva. We have a a cheek swab, so we call that a buckle swab. There's different methods with which that we can collect the sample and run the testing on, but it's really, for the most part, these days can be non-invasive and can be done in saliva or a cheek swab, so really quite simple. And then the types of testing that can be done, so if we have, let's say, an infant and they have hemolytic anemia. They have anemia, the red blood cells are breaking down prematurely before they're supposed to, and we're not really sure exactly why that's happening. Maybe there is a panel test that we would run, and a genetic panel is where we're looking at many genes through the one test. And all of those genes would have a role to play in different kinds of hemolytic anemias. So there's panel testing. And then we have single gene testing. So let's say we know that PK deficiencies in the family or the person's clinical presentations, it's all pointing towards PK deficiency. We would run single gene testing, only looking at the one gene, the PKLR gene. And then if we know of the PKLR specific genetic change that's in the family. Maybe someone has the condition, we've run testing in them before, and we know exactly what we're looking for. Other families can do what we call single site testing. So they're not only just looking at the PKLR gene itself, but they're zooming in in the exact position in the gene where there's a specific known genetic change. And there's other testing that can be done So that's the three types of testing we would use to diagnose someone or do testing in other family members. When it comes to the technicalities of the testing, there's a couple of things that get done in the lab. One is sequence analysis, where they are reading through the gene and they are reading the sequence or the spelling of the gene. And that's sequence analysis. And they also do different testing that's called deletion and duplication analysis, where they're looking for pieces of genetic information missing or extra within the gene itself. So deletion is piece missing and duplication or pieces extra, missing and extra pieces of genetic information. So different samples, different types of testing, and then different technicalities when it comes to the tests is getting done in the lab, but ultimately ends up with the same result. Thank you. That helps to clarify, I think, a lot for the listeners. One other area that I think leads to confusion and pervic kinase deficiency is the way that the genetic changes are described, that oftentimes in the medical literature now, or even in clinical practice, we're talking about PKLR changes and referring to specific gene changes as either missense mutations or non-missense 
And I wondered if you could describe what these two terms mean. Yeah, absolutely. And those are just two of the terms that we can see on test reports. There's lots of different words that can be used. And oftentimes, genetic test reports come back and they're full of technical information. They're full of genetic speak. And if you don't speak the language in, in everyday your everyday life, the test report means nothing to anyone outside of genetics. In one sense, it keeps us in a job, so that's great. But in the other sense, it's not very helpful when someone's looking at a test report and it, again, can be quite overwhelming and you're seeing a lot of words. What does this actually mean for me? What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for my baby who's in the hospital and could be quite sick? And so it's a great question to try and understand what those words mean. It might be useful to break it down and what's going on with the testing. So when a lab gets your sample, they pull out all your genetic information and then they look at the gene in question or genes in question. And I said earlier, they're reading through your genes and they're looking for spelling errors or spelling mistakes within the gene. I literally mean that all of our genes, all of our genetic information is made up of strings of letters. Each gene is made up of strings of thousands of letters. There's only four letters in the genetic alphabet. A, like apple, and I always say that because apparently I say my A's like E's. So A, like apple, <laughs> C, T, and G. So there's four letters in our genetic alphabet, and each of our 20,000 genes are made up of strings of those letters in different combinations. So the lab takes a sample, pulls out the PKLR gene, and they start reading through it. And they're reading through it, comparing someone's gene spelling to a typical or reference spelling of the gene. A, G, C, T, G, A, C, however the person's gene is spelled. If we think about the spelling of a gene as just being like a sentence, a basic sentence, the grey cat ran down the hall. That's just the spelling of a gene. For example, I'm just bringing this back into context in a way that we could maybe understand. We'll take a sentence, the grey cat ran down the hall. If someone has a missense genetic change, their sentence maybe reads, the grey cat ran down the Ball, B-A-L-L, as opposed to H-A-L-L. -L. It's a spelling difference in the middle of the sentence. It's a missense. The word looks similar, sounds similar when you say it, but it's a different word. Ball is different from hall. So that's a missense. There's a missense change within the gene. It's a letter difference, may or may not have an impact on the sentence, the gene itself. If we say the grey full stop, that's nonsense. It's not a full sentence, doesn't make any sense, and there's a full stop where there's not supposed to be a full stop, and that's a nonsense genetic change. And effectively, what's going on there and what we're thinking about and why the lab puts that in a lab report is that it can tell us the spelling difference that was identified in someone's gene. Does it have any impact on the gene at all? Does it stop the gene from working completely? Or does it change the gene just a little bit where we have enough of the gene still doing its job? And so it can have an impact on what it means for someone's clinical presentation. With many genetic conditions, the net effect is that regardless of the change, the net effect is it's stopping the gene from working. And that's not the case with PKLR. We can have some of the gene doing some work some of the time. Any follow-up questions on that? Was there anything that I said there about that sentence structure that doesn't make sense? I think that sentence structure makes it more clear what the difference is between missense and non-missense. And there's, as you were saying, so many different ways in which a change can be a non-missense change. And the effect can is generally drastic to the sentence or to the gene or the way that the protein's made. But depending on where it occurs, there's the potential actually that it doesn't have to be drastic, but that most of the time it will be. 
I think, as you were saying, for pyruvate kinase deficiency, this becomes such an important concept because there does seem to be a relationship between those genetic changes and the way that the protein is made and then has an effect on symptoms and complications. And there doesn't seem to be a perfect correlation between the two. But for some of the registry data that we've looked at over time, there does seem to be a relationship where people who have two more drastic changes to non-missense mutations or changes do seem to have a higher rate of complications and issues and transfusion needs as compared with those who have two missense to more minor changes. So there is a relationship, but it's just not purely predictive for, for individual people. So I think that's where there's been so much interest in people knowing what kind of mutations do I have, not just that I have PK deficiency, but what is my genetic makeup? You're absolutely right. And you're probably very aware of a study that came out in 2020. It was a reasonable size study looking at 257 patients. And they showed that very thing where people with two non-missense seem to have more severe presentation or more clinical implications. Absolutely. And one way to think about a missense, if we go back to that, the sentence, the grey cat ran down the hall. The missense example I gave you was the grey cat ran down the ball. It doesn't really make much sense, right? That sentence doesn't make any sense. So if that was the gene and that was the change, then it would have some issues. The gene probably wouldn't work very well. If we instead use the example of the grey cat ran down the hall, grey being spelled G-R-A-Y, versus the grey cat ran down the hall, grey being spelled G-R-E-Y. To me, they both spell grey, coming from where I come from, and that sentence makes perfect sense. And so that may not be as detrimental, as problem-causing to the gene as the grey cat ran down the ball. Problematic. That makes sense. I I think, too, the interest in the genetic change specifically between missense and non-missense is of interest to parents of young babies getting a new diagnosis. What does this exact genetic change mean? Or what do we know about other children or adults who have this exact genetic change in terms of any issues that they've faced over their lifetime? Where there's been new interest in what the genetic changes are is that it impacts some clinical trial eligibility for PK activators and also seems to impact the likelihood of a PK activator having a positive effect on hemoglobin, on anemia, and red cell breakdown. And so there's interest in that way too, in terms of thinking about treatments for pyruvate kinase deficiency, that there does seem to be a relationship between the kind of genetic change somebody has and the likelihood of having an effect from a PK activator in particular. And it's everything that you just said there. It's, it's not only what is the exact genetic change. Can I find this out? And, and some people they seem in some sense to get hung up on what is my exact genetic change or my child's genetic change. It leads to the bigger question of why are we doing genetic testing? If someone has a clinical diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency, why do we need to run a genetic test? And you said it yourself, it may indeed open doors for the possibility of a clinical trial. And then knowing the exact genetic change could lead to that door being opened. But it can also lead to giving someone more learning all the time, as you know, through 
different studies that we're learning and, and our knowledge is expanding, understanding what do each of these genetic changes actually mean for a person and can we provide someone with a potential prognosis? What will their symptoms look like? This condition, as the listeners probably know, it's very variable. Whether someone has one transfusion, no transfusions, multiple transfusions, mild anemia, fatigue, it's, it can be very variable and it can be very hard, especially when we have children in the clinic who are so young and parents are really hungry and desperate for answers. We can't always give them a prognosis. I often say your child will show us what they're going to do, what their specific issues will be with their genetic change. And I always try and make it big picture and make it more global in that there's nothing more personal than your genes. It's what makes you exactly who you are. And I, some way I think about is all being genetically perfect in our own unique way and Sometimes when genes are not working properly, it causes clinical issues and can have clinical manifestations or, or symptoms, and we don't, we're not always able to predict what those will be. And that goes for even if we do know the specific genetic changes, their child will show us what they need and, and when they need it. I agree with what you're saying that we know there's a lot of variability even in two people who have the same genetic change. So we know that it isn't a perfect correlation and between two siblings who have the exact same genetic explanation for why they have PK deficiency can sometimes have a very different clinical picture in terms of what symptoms they have and how they're managed and what kinds of complications they've had. So it's clear that the genetic explanation isn't the full answer or explanation for what's to come and that there's more to it for each individual person. And that, as you're saying, the young child will tell us what kinds of symptoms or issues they're going to have and how they maybe need to be managed. One of the reasons that may be the case where we're seeing variability even between two siblings is that this is one gene out of 20,000 genes. We know nothing of their other 19,999 genes that make up who they are. And all of those genes are working in different pathways at different times and different combinations. And each sibling, while they share 50% of all of their genes, their DNA, they are uniquely themselves. And so they have all those other genes playing a role in how their body breaks down sugar or produces energy or how their red blood cells work. And we're so far from understanding all of those pathways and all of the fine details to be able to say, okay, this is your set of 20,000 genes. This is how your body's going to react through life and in each and every different circumstance. And we just don't know most of that information. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I'm never going to get to retire. <laughs> We find too, as we do more genetic testing or have, as you had said before, these gene panels, that people who have parvic kinase deficiency might have a genetic change in several other red cell genes that are probably genetic modifiers or modifiers to their the bigger picture of what makes them who they are. And we do keep getting smarter in some ways, but then it gets more complicated in other ways and, and even more difficult to try to explain. Going back to the genetic testing Another point of confusion is the test result of a variant of uncertain significance. And that result comes back quite a bit when we send genetic testing. And we know as more and more people who have hemolytic anemias are having genetic testing, that for pyruvate kinase deficiency in particular, that there are new variants that are coming up on a regular basis. So I wondered if you could explain what a variant of uncertain significance is. The variant of uncertain significance, the favorite thing in my daily life... <laughs> I talk about variants of uncertain significance, I think, more than I do anything else, because more and more these days we're running larger panels, we're uncovering genes that are associated with different conditions. And we always say it, let's look at the fewest number of genes possible, because the chance of finding a variant of uncertain significance increases with the more genes that we look at. 
we take a step back for a second and we think about the 20,000 genes in the body. From a medical standpoint, we know what about maybe six and a half, maybe 7,000 of them do with regards to their normal job, what they do in the body and what it means if they don't work. So there's a good 13,500 genes that we don't know what they do yet. We're still figuring out their actual function in the body. If we then zoom into each gene and we look at each letter, I told you earlier there was thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of letters that make up the spelling of each gene. We're so far from understanding fully what each letter would mean if it was different along that gene. When the lab reads through someone's gene, their PKLR gene, they're reading through it and they're looking to see how is this gene spelled compared to the typical or reference spelling of the gene. If they find at any point there is a spelling difference, the lab asks a couple of questions. Do we know that's a true genetic error that's going to stop the gene from working, from doing its job? Have we seen it in other people before with PK deficiency? If the answers are no, they'll ask the other question, have we seen this gene in large enough numbers in the general healthy population? And if the answer is still no, then they're left with this. We don't actually know what this spelling difference means. All we can say is that this person has a spelling difference compared to what we expect, and we don't know if that's problem causing or not. So they report it back as a variant of uncertain significance. And I talk with people all the time, and I often caution about getting too hung up on a variant of uncertain significance because I get it, someone's looking for an answer, they're looking for the why, but the lab truly doesn't know what that variant of uncertainty means at this point in time. Meanwhile, the patient over here is thinking, well, if it wasn't something, the lab wouldn't have put it on the report. And I get why that's easy to jump to that conclusion. There's really nothing to be done about a variant of uncertain significance until it's able to be reclassified. Sure, we can have some suspicion around it. We can maybe just put an asterisk beside it and say to be revisited. But all we can do is really wait. Over time, as the lab runs, it samples more often in individuals with the condition or in the general healthy population. When they're able to reclassify a variant, when they have enough data, they would reissue, for the most part, a new report um, and let someone know or let their providers know, here's the new report. Now we're finding we're starting to gather some data on reclassification in different disorders and different genes, and we're finding that somewhere in the realm of 85 to 90% of the time, depending on the condition, variants of uncertainty are getting reclassified as completely benign, not problem-causing. And so with having more and more experience with variants of uncertainty and their reclassification, we realize that the vast majority of the time, a variant will be reclassified as not problem-causing, and it's not something that's really been helpful in the family. I think for people who have evidence of red cell breakdown for who have hemolysis. And there's this question of what is the type of congenital hemolytic anemia? What's the red cell problem they were born with? If they have one PKLR change that is known to be what we call pathogenic disease causing and another, that's the VUS, that variant of uncertain significance. What sometimes can be helpful is trying to identify an expert red cell reference center that might be able to help to try to determine whether it's more likely to be pathogenic or more likely to be, as you said, a benign normal gene change. I think this is particularly useful in people who look like they have a red cell issue to begin with, where you can see that there's an issue in the other laboratory tests and trying to come up with a genetic explanation. I think in that circumstance where you have the VUS, it can be 
useful to pursue that if possible. Because as you said earlier, knowing the answer may help open doors in terms of having potential treatments and other things. That's where I think the VUS can stand in the way if that may be the explanation and there's uncertainty and just trying to explore what options there are for trying to get to an answer more quickly than the kind of usual slow reclassification system that often happens with VUSs, which sometimes takes years to happen. A long time. It can take years. Yeah, but absolutely can take years. And sometimes we will not only what you're describing there is the functional studies, asking the lab, okay, can you make this change in a cell in the lab setting? And then what does that do to the red blood cells? And that's functional studies looking to see, is this detrimental to the gene? And the other thing that can be done is familial studies. So if we have a sibling who has the pathogenic, the genetic change that definitely stops the gene from working, and they don't have the VUS, they have not inherited the variant of uncertainty, but they still have PK deficiency, that's informative. It tells us that there might be some other genetic change there that the, the lab test just hasn't been able to pick up to date. And then if we test another family member who has the variant of uncertainty and they don't have PK deficiency, does that tell us something? So we can glean information by testing additional family members as well. Combination of all the disciplines. <laughs> People often have questions about what does it mean to be a carrier of PK deficiency or a carrier of a genetic condition. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I talked earlier about PK deficiency being a recessive condition where someone has to have both copies of the gene not working. And when we have someone who has a recessive condition, oftentimes assumption is, but we will confirm with genetic testing, is that one copy of the gene not working came from mom and one copy of the gene not working came from dad. Mom and dad don't have PK deficiency. They don't have the genetic disorder. And when we look at their genetic testing, it shows us that mom has two copies of the PKLR gene, just as we all do. And dad has two copies of the PKLR gene. Now, being a carrier means that you have one copy of the gene in question not working, and then you have a regular working copy of the gene. So mom and dad are both carriers having a regular working copy of the gene as well as the non-working copy of the gene. And we'll have couples talk to us regularly and they'll say, does this mean that all of our children are going to have the condition? We are carriers, but we don't have it. We're healthy. Having that regular working copy of the gene is enough to keep them healthy and not have the disease or the condition. And they're concerned that each pregnancy they have, they're going to pass on that non-working copy. When we have two carriers of any recessive condition, there's four possibilities, four possibilities in any pregnancy. And if we think about it, one possibility or one out of the four is where mom passes on the regular working copy of the gene, dad passes on the regular working copy of the gene. That pregnancy, that child does not have the condition and they are not a carrier. So there's one out of four possibilities, 25%. Another one out of four option when they're having a pregnancy is where mom passes on the non-working copy and dad passes on the non-working copy. That pregnancy will have the condition. The pregnancy has inherited two non-working copies of the gene. So that's one out of four or 25%. And then the other two options, the other two possibilities out of four is where either mom passes on working and dad passes on non-working or mom passes on non-working and dad passes on working. So we have two possibilities out of the four or 50% chance the pregnancy would be a carrier, not have the condition either like mom or like dad. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I've recently heard conversations between people where a question came up around carriers having 
findings consistent with anemia or fatigue who carry people who carry one gene change for pervic kinase deficiency. And I would just clarify that people who are carriers for pervic kinase deficiency, so who have just one PKLR change, have low PK enzyme activity. So that would come up as a low test on screening, but that all other red cell tests would be normal. So that if somebody has anemia or signs of red cell breakdown or fatigue, those would not be associated with being a carrier for pervic kinase deficiency. And so other diagnoses should be looked into for that person. That isn't a, an explanation for that. The other piece of being a carrier is that you have that you know, important component of having a low pervic kinase activity. And so when people have that test result, that's an important indication for genetic testing that you can't tell the difference between somebody who's a carrier for pervic kinase deficiency by enzyme testing versus somebody who has the condition. Of course, there's all the other lab results and findings that might come with pervic kinase deficiency that helps you to tell the difference between a carrier who wouldn't have any of those findings and someone who has the disease. But that's an important reason to have genetic testing if you have a low enzyme activity because it helps you to know the difference between being a carrier, of course, and having the condition. And then also knowing if someone is a carrier, it can help with reproductive decision-making or just understanding what does this mean? Let's say one partner has PK deficiency, so they have two copies of the gene not working. Understanding if the other partner is a carrier helps understand what does this mean for any children that we may have. So I talked earlier about two parents being carriers and the chances that they would have a child with PK deficiency. When we have someone who has PK deficiency, both copies of their PKLR gene, they don't work. Both copies of them don't work. So any pregnancy they have or contribute to, that's what they will pass on, a non-working copy of the PKLR gene. And so by understanding if their partner is a carrier, if they are, then any pregnancy between those two people, 50% of them would have the condition PK deficiency, and 50% would be carriers. People who have PK deficiency who are doing family planning wonder whether their partner should be screened for being a carrier, given that PK deficiency is rare. Is that something that you would recommend? And some people say to me, oh, my family member has this condition and my partner should have testing. And I hear the word should oftentimes in the clinic. And my personal opinion is that no one has to do genetic testing ever. <laughs> it's entirely up to yourself. There's nothing more personal than our genetic information. And so it's entirely up to you if you want to find out what your genes look like. And it's about what does the test result mean for you and how does that influence any decisions that you make? And my role in all of that is to help you get to a place of, is this something I want to do or not when I have all of the facts and what this would mean for me? And so if someone has PK deficiency and their partner want to find out that the partner is a carrier, helps them understand the chance their child would have the condition, that's absolutely fine. And we'll gladly talk about that and help them coordinate it. If someone says, I don't want to know, doesn't matter to me, it's not going to change a single thing, then maybe we don't do testing. But from a medical and clinical standpoint, if you want information, then yes, testing would be indicated or recommended for a partner so they understood their risks and chance. I don't really like the word risk, but chance of having a child with the condition or not. And just to clarify again, because I've seen patients where they have pervic kinase deficiency and then say to me, I don't want to have children because they'll have pervic kinase deficiency. So can you just clarify again, if someone has pervic kinase deficiency, what's the likelihood of them having a child with pervic kinase deficiency? If a person has pyruvate kinase deficiency, and so there's different scenarios here, and their partner has pyruvate kinase deficiency, 100% of their biological children 
will have pyruvate kinase deficiency. Mum has two working copies, or non-working copies, sorry, of the PKLR gene. That's all she has to pass on. Dad would have two non-working copies of the PKLR gene. That's all he has to pass on. So both parents would be passing on non-working copies. Each pregnancy would have the condition. If we have one partner who has the PK deficiency and the other partner does not have PK deficiency and is not a carrier, none of their children will have the condition. All of their children will be carriers. And that happens because the affected partner has two non-working copies of the gene. That's all they have to pass on to any pregnancy, non-working copy. And the other partner is not a carrier, does not have the condition. They will pass on a regular working copy of the PKLR gene. All of their children will be carriers. That makes sense. Thank you. You were talking about how important it is for someone to make their own decision about genetic testing and that it's always a choice. Can you talk a little bit about who finds out the results of someone's genetic tests? It's a good question. And genetic test, a clinical genetic test is like any other test in medicine. It's a clinical test. It's part of someone's medical record and it's protected private health, protected information under HIPAA. And so the patient receives the information and any other healthcare provider that they would like the certainly the ordering provider, but any other provider that they would like the result to be shared with, with their patient's permission, they would have access to the test result. And it leads on to that. I get the question regularly where people say, who has access to that, my medical record, and will that influence my insurance? Can I be discriminated against? If I just show my old anemia, do I just leave that in my medical record? Why would I add a genetic test in there that shows something that's that could be detrimental to me or may lose my insurance? That's the big question. Will I lose my insurance? There's a federal law in place known as GINA, and GINA is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And GINA provides protections with regards to medical insurance and employers. So neither of those two bodies can discriminate against someone because of a genetic test report. Medical insurance cannot deny someone coverage. They cannot um, charge them higher for a premium. And an employer cannot fire someone because of a genetic test report. GINA has been in place since 2008, and there's never been a case brought against GINA. Now, one thing that we're very clear to discuss with people before they run any genetic testing is that GINA does not provide any protections with regards to life insurance, long-term care, or disability insurances. And there's no protections for military personnel. Now, if someone has their life insurance in place or long-term care, whatever, any insurances like that in place, and then they run the genetic test, they do not have to go back and tell the insurance company, hey, I ran a test. Do you want to see my results? The, the policy was agreed upon. They agreed to the, your premium every month, and that doesn't change. If someone runs a genetic test and then they try to get life or long-term care or disability insurances, and the company asks, have you had genetic testing? The person would have to say, yes, I've had genetic testing. And if the company asked, what are your results? You would have to share them. So there are protections, but it doesn't cover everything. And it depends on where you're at and whether you have your insurance in place or not, what difference it makes to you. But, but you don't automatically lose medical insurance because of a genetic test result. It just doesn't happen. Thank you for clarifying that. I have one last question for you. What advice do you give families when you're giving new results of a genetic test in a baby? For example, if you're seeing a family that just had a child who had genetic testing and has a new diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency, what, what kind of advice would you give to them? It's always interesting in the 
the clinic, especially with very young children. And I've worked in paediatrics for many years and had experience in the, the NICU um, with families getting these brand new diagnoses. And fundamentally, the bottom line is that they know their child is, is sick. They know there's something going on and they're, they've been looking for answers. And while it can be hard to hear the words, the, the genetic test results, and this is a genetic error, and it's not something where we can just do what one-time transfusion and off we go and everything's going to be great. I'm always very clear that the worst is here, right? We're standing in the clinic. You see what's going on. This genetic information is just telling you why. It's telling the doctors why. It's helping us understand a bit more about what's going on, what the prognosis may look like. And the key thing for me is that a genetic test result, and this goes for any genetic condition, a genetic test result fundamentally does not technically change anything in that person. It does not change anything in the cells and the molecules themselves. This genetic difference has been there since conception. And we've just peeled back a layer and shown people that it's there. We haven't changed anything. Nothing's changed from before we got the result to now. And so it's just showing us something that's already there. And it's now allowing doctors and providers to take care of their child with all the information. And it may open doors, as we talked about earlier, it may open doors for potential trials, for example, even though we don't have a fix and a cure right now today, it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be one in the future. And now we have the tangible why. You know about the medical stuff, the scary stuff that's happening and that may continue to happen, but we now know why. And it's something tangible and it's something to read up on. And it's a place where we know there may be clinical trials, there may be support groups. There's lots of benefits to understanding the why someone has a sick child. And it can also help them by understanding the chances of having additional children with the condition or not having additional children with the condition. It's also a possibility, even though they're not thinking about additional children in that moment in time when you're standing in the clinic with a brand new baby who's quite sick, but down the road. And it's one thing, I've, I've said it regularly, I getting to follow families in the clinic. You'll follow them for a couple of years. And when you see them in two years, I, I always say to them, I never say it at the time when I'm standing there early on, but in a couple of years time and you see them again and you see how resilient the parents are and how this has just become part of their life and how well adjusted they have become and they love their child dearly. And they're now living with the condition and they understand what's going on. I always say to them in that moment early on, I wish I could say to you, look into this crystal ball. This will be you in two years time. You're going to have so much resilience. You're going to have so much love for your child. And I know there's a lot of fear at this point in time. I never say it will be okay. It may never be okay for them. But when I do see that, I wish I could go back and show them in those early days just how okay it will be. Claire, I want to thank you so much for this conversation today and for clarifying the complexities of genetic testing and the genetics behind pervic kinase deficiency. I enjoyed this conversation and I know that the listeners will too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pervic Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is no K-N-O-W-P-K-deficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.